Today is a time when we celebrate, what, 33 years, is it, of independence. Isn't it amazing, though, that it seems to be inherent within us that we want to be independent? It just seems to be inherent within us. We want to do things our way. What does independence mean? Webster defines it in this fashion. It means relying only on oneself or one's own abilities, one's own judgment, and so on. It means to be self-confident, self-reliant, free from the influence, control, or determination of another or others, free from the rule of another, controlling or governing oneself, self-governing. That's Webster's definition of independent or independence. And so we can see that freedom is the underlying motivation for independence. In fact, independence is freedom. And so that's what we're celebrating today. Freedom as a nation. Countries want to become independent, like ours. I believe it's safe to say that more nations have become independent in this 20th and 21st century than any other century in the history of the world. Africa and Europe especially are evidence of this fact. And of course, we as a nation also is an evidence of this fact. We are 33 years today as an independent nation. Doesn't that sound good? Mm. So some it does and some it doesn't. It's amazing how different emotions are impacted or reflected when we talk about independence here. We are free, we say, from almost 300 years of rule, dominancy by England, the tyrant. We are 33 years old, and now we are self-governing as a nation. We have political freedom. Doesn't that sound good? Now, unlike our 200 and what, I think it's 230-year-old neighbor, America, I think, our motivation for independence was not a religious one. Ours was not a desire for religious freedom that led eventually to political freedom. I believe it's safe to say that here we have always had religious freedom. Isn't that right? We've always enjoyed religious freedom. But watch out. Look over the bar. You know what the bar is? Some of you young people don't know what the bar is, right? Over Hog Island, look in the sky. You know what Hog Island is either, eh? <laughs> Paradise Island, look over there. Look in the sky. You see, there's a cloud like, like a man's fist. You say, what am I talking about? Well, some time ago I read in a newspaper about a teacher right here in one of the schools in the south saying that we shouldn't be praying in school. Man's fist. We have religious freedom. That's what America said 200 years ago. Look at it today. But we do have political freedom. We have religious freedom here. But I doubt that we fit into the other aspect of the definition of independence when we can rely only on ourselves and our own abilities and be completely self-reliant. That's impossible for us to experience. In fact, when you get right down to it, no nation in the world is ever absolutely independent. In every area. See, there are serious internal problems arise when we live with the attitude that we don't need anyone. We is independent. 
We don't need anyone. Oh yeah, let the tourists stop coming. You understand what I'm saying? Serious problems arise when we believe that we are an island to ourselves. But yet, nations want to be independent. Institutions want to become independent, including churches. One of the things we boast here at Calvary Bible Church is what? We're an independent church. None denominational. Now, I believe this is a good kind of independence. But I believe that in this sense, this is biblical even. It simply means to be self-governing, self-determining, and self-supporting. That we're not depending on another organization or mother figure to take care of us. That's the idea. It has nothing to do with exclusivism and the kind of independence that cuts us off from cooperating and fellowshipping and uniting with other local churches that hold the same basic fundamentals of biblical, historical Christianity as we do. See, that's the problem we can fall into here. Because we are independent, we don't want to have knowledge of anybody else. And so we cut ourselves off. And so Calvary Bible Church becomes a little independent church in the midst of all the other churches around. We can't fellowship with them because they're not like us. That's not the kind of independence to be reflected by the people of God. The people of God never independent of one another. We are interdependent upon each other. As local churches, as individuals, as members of the body of Christ, we cannot do without other members of the body of Christ. We've got to believe that. We've got to understand that. The Bible knows nothing of this kind of independence and separates the people of God. Rather, it teaches, I say, interdependence upon credible members of the body of Christ. When churches refuse to follow those principles of interdependence when it comes to God's people, all kinds of problems arise. But then thirdly, we're not dealing with those. I'm just showing you how people as nations, as individuals, as, as, as rather as, as our institutions wants independence. But even we as individuals, we want to become independent. How many of you have children? All of them want to become independent. I don't care how old they are. Right now. Isn't that right? Children want to become independent of their parents. And they should be independent at the right time. Now this holds true in independence with nations. Not every nation is ready. This holds true to institutions. This holds true to individuals. It's the right time for independence to be granted. You see, with children, though, the problem is that so many of them want to become independent to do their own thing when they are incapable of supporting doing their own thing. They want their parents to support doing their own thing. They want to come and go as they please, to do whatever they wish to do with whomever they wish to do it with. But the only thing is... That they want their parents to pay the bills while they're doing it. And so when they get into trouble, they want the parents to get them out of the trouble because they did things their own way. I remember I used to tell my kids when I was talking to them about drugs and all of that, I said, now listen, I want you to be at home. This is girls especially. We want you to be home at 10 o'clock. Now, if you come later than that, that's your choice. But don't call me if you get in trouble after 10. I don't want you to take drugs. But it's your choice. If I got a call from the police station, you in the police station because you got drugs in your car, I ain't coming down. And I mean this. Now, I'll deal with it in the right time. But you see, they have to understand their consequences for doing their things their own way. 
without the parents. We have too many parents who are trying to take the consequences away from the children who try to be independent when they shouldn't be. There's the right time to do it, you see. That's why I call these kind of people dependent independence. Actually, a better name for them is juvenile delinquent, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. But actually, we should be preparing our children to be independent. We've got to release the arrow at some time. We should be preparing to have our children leave us, not stay with us. Sometimes we hold on to our children when they should be doing their own thing. I know, for instance, of parents, and the children became 18 years of age, they still stay home with them. Parents feed them, clothe them, give them rent and everything, and they go out and they get a job and they don't give the parents anything. No, no, as soon as your child gets a job, cut off all financial aid. Let them pay for the car themselves. I'm serious. But let me tell you about some parents who really train their kids to leave them properly, in a way. This is a real family. This couple has three children, two boys, one girl. The two boys were ages 23 and 26 at this time. Both, at that time, owned their own business. And they were in the process of raising their own family, just got married, these two boys. The girl was age 20, who's been paying room and board for the past two years since she was 18 and she got a job. She was paying room and board for parents. She comes and goes as she pleases, but she pays for room and board. She's just completed making her own financial arrangements to go to college on the money that she's earning. And she works after school to pay these bills. And they all have a great family relationship. Their parents are training their children to leave them and to know how to be responsible for being independent. You see, we ruin our children when we don't teach them how to be independent and to release them when they should be. But I want to propose to you this morning that although independence may be good for a country in its relationship with another country or with regard to an institution with another institution and even with an individual in regard to another individual, I want to say one thing this morning and it is this. Independence is never good for a person in its relationship to God. Independence is never good for a person in his relationship to God. Listen carefully. Man should never be free from the control of God in his life. Man should never be free to do things his own way apart from God. I believe that this kind of independence, freedom from God, is the basic cause for both the personal, domestic, social, religious, and economic difficulties in our communities, in our societies. We are seeking to live independent of God so all kinds of problems happen. Remember this. Man's spiritual lostness is essential or is essentially, rather, man's spiritual lostness is essentially the result of his chosen independence of God. Stated another way, man is not really free or independent until he ratifies this declaration of dependency upon God through Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. First, man's spiritual lostness is essentially the result of his chosen independence of God. That's a negative way of saying it. Here's the positive way. Man is not really free or independent until he ratifies his declaration of dependency upon God through Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is that spiritually speaking, we're never free until we are dependent upon God. Turn with me please in your Bibles to John chapter 8. This is a passage that speaks to this truth. And as we celebrate this political freedom we have here, I want you to see that we need to be celebrating an even greater spiritual freedom that only Jesus Christ can give. 
John chapter 8, verse 30. Wonderful passage of scripture. Jesus teaching, and as he spoke, people believed. It says, as, they, as he spoke these words, many believed on him. Not all, many. Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. You are truly my disciples. You are really my disciples. You are not just professing. You are possessing disciples when you follow my word. And so Jesus is saying to these believers here that believing or the essence of being a believer is not a condition for discipleship. I want you to clear this now. He's not saying here that in order for you to become a Christian, you must go on believing everything I said. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, a genuine disciple, because Jesus makes a distinction between levels of discipleship. You could be a fooling around disciple. You don't mean business at all. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying that a disciple who's truly a disciple, one who is really coming after Jesus Christ, is one who's always obeying his word. That's what he's saying. If you go to John chapter 6, you'll see this breakdown in the different levels of, depend, of, of discipleship. When Jesus preached some hard sayings. The scripture says many of his disciples turned away from him. Why? Because they couldn't accept these hard sayings. They couldn't follow Jesus all the way. What Jesus is talking about here, this kind of freedom here, uh, come to those who follow him all the way. In other words, I'm saying that many believers are not really as free as they should be, even though they're Christians, because they're not following Jesus Christ all the way. That's the point here. A true disciple is one who continues to obey the word of God. But now notice now the result of being a true disciple. He says in verse 32. And you will know the truth and the truth will what? Make you free. That's a powerful statement. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. That means there were some people there who were disciples of Jesus Christ. And they were not yet set free. Read a passage. You'll see that. Why? Because they really didn't know the truth. As fully as they should. You will know the truth. And the truth not may make you free. But will make you free. The truth here is the truth concerning the person. The work of Jesus Christ. The word knowing here is the personal knowledge. That is appropriated in one's life by faith. In the one who said I am the truth. So in essence. And we don't have time to develop. But what he's saying is that I am the truth. I'm going to set you free. This isn't some objective body of knowledge that is going to set you free. This is a person who's going to set you free. Because the truth is embodied in Jesus Christ. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the one who's going to set you free. But you got to know me in an intimate way. In a personal way. Notice now. The truth shall make you free. Now what kind of freedom is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about social freedom? Is he talking about political freedom? Is he talking about what kind of freedom is he talking about? Scripture goes on. Look at verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? These people missed it. They were there listening to the greatest teacher of all times, but they didn't understand. This brings comfort to my soul. That's supposed to be a joke. These people were thinking 
about political freedom. Jesus was talking about the most important freedom of all, spiritual freedom. If one really grasped his message, they would find salvation truth. They would know that, appro uh, that appropriating this salvation truth would lead them into liberation from their spiritual bondage completely. If you know the truth by being a true disciple, I will set you free. The truth will set you free. You see, the blindness of the Jews at this time to the spiritual state clouded the true state of the political dilemma. They forgot about their slavery in Egypt. They forgot about their subjection, their subjugation to other nations during the time of the judges. They forgot about the exile in Babylon and even their current subjugation to Rome. They forgot it. They said, we were never subject to anyone. In spite of all of this, they said, we were never in bondage to any man. You see, they had no sense of the bondage to sin. Isn't that amazing? That these people could say they were never in bondage? I mean, looking at the history to see that all the history was the history of bondage? They were blind to the true condition. They actually believed that their physical and ancestral relationship to Abraham exempted them from spiritual danger. See, this is where we're going now. They believed that their physical and ancestral relationship to Abraham exempted them from spiritual danger. If we were politically okay, if we came from the right family, then we are right spiritually. Jesus is leading them to the truth. To see that that's not so at all. To put it in modern Bahamian terms, they believed that they were the citizens of a Christian country. Never heard that? We independent. And we is a Christian country right there in our constitution. Ah, oh, you're so blind. That's what Jesus would say. You're so blind. You're so blind. You don't know the truth. These people were saying the same thing. They believed that because the ancestors had a right relationship with God, because they were politically under uh, a, the, 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 the rulership of God, a theocracy, then they were okay. Jesus says, oh, no, you're not. You're confusing the issues here. Friends, listen. Independent Bahamas is not a Christian nation. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, the Bible tells me that sin is not the characteristic of a Christian nation. The Bible tells me righteousness is. Isn't that right? What characterizes the Bahamas? What is the major driving force of the Bahamas when it comes to our economy? Money derived from sinful behavior. I know you all think like that, especially those of you who working in government. That's true. Take a look at it. We are known for our Las Vegas style, casinos, way of life, nightclubs, and all of that. More people are employed in these than any other. Does that characterize a Christian nation? Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Hmm? Sin is reproach to every nation. Righteousness exalts a nation. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now notice, twice Jesus says truly, truly. This gives notice that he is about to make a profound and vital statement. King James says verily, verily. What is this truth? Jesus is saying here that anyone who continually commits sin is a slave to sin. Sin, is a, sin in this passage is personified as a hard task master. He doesn't let you go. 
Look at the text. The emphasis is upon continually commits. You're doing it as a way of life. Our way of life as Bahamians here on the whole is committed to sin. This text puts it in a continuous tense, present continuous tense. It's a way of life, not just a one-time experience, but a way of life. Jesus is saying, if you are always committing sin, sin, then sin is your master. And if sin is your master, you're not free from sin, right? You're in bondage to sin. You are not free at all if you're in bondage to sin. You are enslaved to doing what your master wants you to do it, no matter what you think your political status may be. No matter whether we're in the first world country or not, if we are still under the slave master's sin, then we're not free. We're not free at all. In verse 35, Jesus alludes here to Ishmael, the slave son of Abraham. You remember, he was cast out of Abraham's house because he was not a true son. Isaac was the true son, the son of promise, who belonged and therefore he remained in the house. Jesus' question to these professing disciples is, are you like Ishmael or are you like Isaac? Now, to put it in theological terms, he's saying, are you under the law or are you under grace? Are you come along with doing things your way or do you come along with benefiting from God doing things his way? Ishmael was God's way. I'm sorry, Isaac was God's way. Ishmael was Abraham's way. You understand what I'm saying? So the question is this, who are you following? You, are you one who only wants to do it your way? Or are you willing to submit to God's way? That's the question here. That's the question. The issue was not physical genealogy, but spiritual kinship. Jesus is the true son and seed of Abraham and of God's house or kingdom. The son of a family has permanent status within it, Jesus is saying. And Jesus extends this analogy to stating that while a son, a son, is rightfully a partaker of family privileges, the son, there's a marked distinction here, the son can give them freedom. The hope for real freedom does not lie in the ancestry of Abraham, but in the action of Jesus Christ. That's the point. And so when we celebrate this 33rd independence today, we say we are a Christian nation. Don't think that makes you a Christian. Don't think that that validates the fact that you're on your way to heaven. No, it doesn't. That's Jesus' point here. That's Jesus' point here. We can have all kinds of privileges, but there's only one person who can give you the privilege of freedom, setting you free from sin, and that's Jesus Christ. If one really grasped his message, Jesus is saying, they would find truth that brings freedom. Knowing and appropriating this truth would liberate them from spiritual bondage. And Jesus is saying, this is true freedom. This is real freedom. This is genuine freedom. This is freedom indeed. This is the freedom that lasts. Not political freedom. Not even religious freedom. But freedom from the power of sin. And there's only one person who can give you that. And that's the son. That's Jesus' point. And so America, it's 230 years old today. But you believe it. Believe it or not, she's fighting now for that freedom she got in 1776 more than she did in 1776. Isn't that right? We were talking about that when we were in the States with a friend over there. He's talking about how all of these freedoms have been taken away from America. Look at all of this evil that is being done. But you know, I said, I haven't read any real detailed discussion at all as to the role of the Christian in all of this. 
my question is this. Why did the Christians let the freedom go? They had it, didn't they? Every major school in the United States was a Christian school founded to train people to be preachers. Do you know that? Huh? Do you know that? What some of the Ivy League schools? Yale, Harvard, all of those. They were founded to train men to be preachers. You can't even get a preacher to go into today. Where did it go? They're blaming all of these liberals. No, 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 no. You know what it is? Right there it says in First Timothy that I alluded to this morning. We want peace and tranquility and godliness in our community. We pray for the leaders. That's what it says. So that we might have. Isn't that right? Look at the scripture. In other words, if we don't have it, the peace and the tranquility and godliness in our streets, don't blame the government if you're not praying for them. Who gave up all the freedom? It's the Christians. They became lax. They became lazy. They lost their godliness, their holiness. And they wanted to do things their own way, not God's way. When God said to be holy, well, I'm just going to be holy enough to keep me from the world. But before you know it, your definite holiness became a worldly one. And that's what's happening. You see. But listen to this now. Listen to this carefully. Here in the Bahamas, we are fighting an ongoing battle as well to maintain true political and social freedom. There's no doubt about that. And perhaps not so much from the outside as from the inside. In no area of our lives is absolute freedom really enjoyed. Any part of our life can as far as our privileges are concerned, can be taken away at the whim of a power-hungry, morally corrupt politician. Look at the states, United States. One man, one man allowed same-sex marriages to take place because he signed a paper. He agreed to do it. One politician right now is holding up a law that will prevent sexual abuse against a child. I forgot what state it is. Just one man. He wouldn't do it. And all the freedoms that they have enjoyed in those areas have been taken away by one corrupt politician. You say, it can't happen here? Rome said that. But then the pagans came to the gates. You remember that? America said that. America is now one of the biggest mission fields we have in the world. The Bahamas, a Christian country, religious freedom. What are you doing to make sure that it stays? Why is this so? Why is it that we have people who want to take away these kinds of freedoms that we have? I believe it's because man himself is not really free. Speaking generally, not really free at all. We do not experience personal freedom where it really matters. And that's inside of us. We do not experience it in our personal being as made in the image of God. Oh yes, political freedom, religious freedom, even social freedom and all of these things. But still, man is not free. A half century ago, the famous Caspar Hoser appeared in the streets of Nuremberg. He had been released from a dungeon in which he had been confined from infancy. He had never seen the face or heard the voice of a man or a woman or a child. He had never gone outside the walls of his prison since he was put in as a baby. He had never even seen the full light of day. A distinguished lawyer in Germany wrote, a legal history of this man's case, and he entitled it A Crime Against the Life of a Soul. All of these things were taken away, but this lawyer had the insight to see that the crime was against the life of a soul. And every individual who does not have this relationship with Jesus Christ that frees him from the power of sin 
is a man who's experiencing a crime against his soul. And so as we celebrate our 33rd year as an independent nation, we must be reminded that the real freedom man is looking for cannot be found in the Bahamas, no matter how better it is becoming. We cannot look for freedom in any other country, even the United States of America. Political freedom is not the ultimate freedom. Social freedom is not the ultimate freedom. True, lasting, ultimate freedom can only be found in Jesus Christ. And he said, I am the truth. And if you know me, if you have me, you're free indeed. You see, Jesus Christ won the battle for man's independence and freedom from sin more than 2,000 years ago on a rugged hill outside of a small town called Jerusalem. He began his declaration of freedom from sin for mankind with the words, It is finished! You talk about a declaration of independence? That's it. On Calvary's hill, it is finished! When he died in our place for our sin, he made it possible for us to be free. To be free indeed. But now what kind of freedom is meant by this? First it means... Forgiveness from the penalty of sin. Paul says in Acts 13, 38, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Forgiveness is a freedom from penalty of sin. This is one kind of freedom we need. And we need to have it at any cost. And that cost was played on Calvary's cross. It's a freedom from the penalty of sin. Sometimes, though, we can throw freedom away. For those of you who know uh, Washington, the capital... There stands a statue of the stately freedom la lady, they called her, almost 20 feet high. The face of this statue is framed by a crest of stars, a shield of stars and stripes in her hand. This lady sculpture was brought from Rome during a raging storm on the waters. And as they were going through the seas and becoming rough, they had to start to throw things overboard. And so it was suggested that they throw the statue overboard. But the captain refused. And these words echo through the history of America today. He says, no, never. We'll flounder before we throw freedom away. We'll flounder before we throw freedom. They need to hear that today over there. But we need to hear it here as well. Because many Bahamians are throwing freedom away by rejecting Jesus Christ out of their lives. But this kind of freedom means, secondly, being released from the conscience of sin. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us ever from the conscience of sin. We don't have to think about it anymore because the blood of Jesus Christ shed at the right time has forgiven us completely, released from the conscience of sin. But also, it means, thirdly, being energized to be victorious over sin. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again as a yoke of slavery. We are energized by the Spirit of God to have victory. We do not have to be mastered by sin. We do not have to be subjugated to sin any longer, because in Christ we are free. But then fourthly, it means eventually to be evicted from the very presence of sin. Listen to these glorious words of hope by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3. 
Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. We will be removed from the very presence of sin, forgiven from the penalty of sin, have power over the power of sin in our lives my friends listen one day we're going to be eventually removed from the very presence of sin isn't that glorious that will be the time when we will truly be free free at last great God almighty free at last free at last Free at last. Great God Almighty. Free at last. Can you say that? F. Forgiveness of sin. R. Release from the conscience of sin. E. Energized to be victorious over sin. E. Again evicted from the presence of sin. My friends, that's freedom. That's freedom indeed. Let me close with this illustration. It is reported... But there is a legendary character in Russia. His name is Rabonovich. He is a subject of hundreds of stories that circulate cautiously, it is said, among the people behind the Iron Curtain at that time. In one of these stories, Rabinovich leaves Moscow for a trip to Europe. He sends back postcards from 10 successive cities he visits. First says, greetings from a free Warsaw. The second said, greetings from a free Prague. The fourth said, greetings from a free Budapest. Finally, he reached Paris, outside of the control of the Iron Curtain. And the last card that came to his friends and families was penciled in big letters. Greetings from a free Rabonovich. He was free, free at last. Spiritually speaking, it's only Jesus Christ who can make you free. Let's bow. Are you free today? Free from the penalty of sin? Free from the power of sin? Looking forward to being free from the presence of sin. You can be free today if you come to know Jesus Christ who is truth and only he can make you free. I trust that you will place your faith in him and be a true follower of Jesus Christ.